Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 120. I am your host, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hey, everybody. Grail. Hello. And Gobolatula. Hey, how you doing? Griff was going to be here, but he could not make it. Uh, we are here to wrap up volume 26, the longest reread we've ever done, three parts. Uh, lots of action to come before uh, when we get that to that point in the podcast. But before then, I wanted to go over quickly, as usual, some of the Berserk news that's been happening. Uh, the first thing I'll say is that the exhibition in Japan, sorry, in Tokyo anyway, uh, recently uh, finished. I think it was September, what was it, like last week it ended, two weeks ago? Yeah, last week. It was on Thursday. That's right. Uh, so yeah, that has ended its first uh, wing of the tour. It's next set to open in Osaka, uh, December 11th through January 30th. The other piece of news that came recently is that the exhibition book, the one that everyone is clamoring for, myself included, they are going to make that available online eventually. There is no date set for that. I believe their wording in the tweet had said, once the exhibition itself is over. So we're looking sometime in 2022, probably. I mean, obviously 2022. When in 2022, we don't we don't really know. I think at this point, last time we recorded, we had already said that Volume 41 got uh, announced. So for those that missed it, that's going to be December 24th, and that's going to carry up through 364. Uh, no information or pictures at all about what's going to be on the cover. It's kind of a mystery right now about what will actually be featured there, but I'm sure they'll have something in mind for that. On the exhibition book itself, uh, several pictures uh, have leaked about what is inside that. It's pretty massive. It's about 270-something pages, uh, and it's large. Uh, it's pretty. It's, it's around the same size as the illustration file, if you, if you remember that book, in terms of height and width. Uh, so... What's interesting is, of course, first of all, there is a Mira interview in the back of it. It is not the same talk that he gave for the uh, the video that's shown at the exhibition. It's a completely different interview. And it actually is an interview question and answer style. So it's a different thing completely. It's about seven pages, I believe. Uh, pretty dense. Uh, I've seen some, some bits of it. There are some additional photos from um, sketches throughout 363... And 364, I believe, as well. Uh, actually, I think it's just 363 now that I think about it. Some in-production uh, shots, drafts, if you, if you will. In addition to some from the sci-fi series uh, that has been talked about. I don't think that one has an official name. But it's the one with it looks like ostrich people. Ostrich, they're ride, riding on ostriches in the future. What's in the interview is, uh, is not that. It's a sci-fi stuff he did uh, back in the early 20. 2004-ish? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 2004. It's kind of annoying because none of these things have names. So it's like the (laughs) other sci-fi one, we say. And then actually, you know, the other other sci-fi one doesn't have a name yet either. There's a drift one. So the drift drift one is with the uh, ostrich uh, dinosaur race stuff in a post-apocalyptic landscape. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. Then the, uh, basically the robot stuff... Uh, with a kid uh, from 2004 is just uh, is just like uh, five uh, pages or six pages he did for Dojinshi. So it was published at the time 
semi-anonymously because his name was not, it was reversed, so not officially by him. And uh, it's just a concept he did and no name and nothing would have come from it. And then there's a giant robot project, which is different. That's an animation project he was working on. And that one doesn't have a name uh, either. And uh, But it was actually worked on. I would have, uh, I guess, uh, produced something if they could have found uh, an animation studio that was interested and a company willing to produce it. So, so yeah, we've got like three different projects that were featured, one that's old, two that were new, uh, or at least uh, never disclosed before. But uh, yeah, I feel like for the general public, pretty confusing. It's the lack of the names and the fact that these were not formally released. They're just design ideas, really. Except for the doujinshi. I guess that did get released, but it's secret, basically. Yeah. Um, in any case, it's the doujinshi one that is featured. Uh, sketches from that are in, in the back of the art book uh, during the interview. In addition to that, the way the book goes is it goes chronologically through, as you can imagine, starts with the Golden Age, shows, you know, volume covers and all the, not all of the, many of the colored pages from the Golden Age. Uh, and it goes chronologically through to Black Swordsman and then Conviction, et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of unequally distributed, the, the amount of art per arc. Like the Black Swordsman gets the least, from what I remember. And then Fantasia and Millennium Falcon get quite a bit uh, of the of the attention. And then it goes through all the volume covers, volume posters, some of the trading cards, maybe not all of the ones you worked on. I can't recall, but lots of the trading card art. The most interesting thing, though, uh, is there are uh, Miura's original illustrations of some of those trading cards that eventually Konami kind of discolored over. That was probably part of the plan. Uh, but these are different from the uh, original art that was colored by Miura that are in, the, in some of those cards. So it's different. So it's... It's a look. It looks like an original piece, right? That Konami then did their color treatment for, mm. making it look like not an original piece. So it's a little strange. Like some, you know, there was some original Mira art in those trading cards all along, basically. Just a, a few of them. Yeah, the six, I think. Got it. It's from the the fifth expansion. The ones I can remember off the top of my head. There's one with Judo reclining in a tree. There's one of Casca. There's one of Pippin. Uh, I don't remember the others off the top of my head. Rickert with a crossbow. There we go. But it's, what's really cool is seeing his original drawing because it you see so much more detail than the final result that Konami produced. Because the colors in those Konamis, you know, you guys have heard me complain about them before probably. It, they're just really dark. You lose a lot of the detail. And mm. it doesn't even really look like Miura art by the time that they're finished with it, which is a bummer. But yeah. the illustration looks great. It's really great to have those. It's, it's really like getting something we've never seen before. But... Other than those, I've not seen any surprises in that book, which I didn't expect to see them, but now it's pretty much confirmed. Nothing too surprising in that book, but it's really great to have them in big format. Still, it'll be a must-buy for sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it makes sense that it's that way because it's not like a new art book where they would uh, include posters and new illustrations. It's really more of a catalog for the exhibition, so it just contains every piece that's exhibited and that's also why it's in chronological order is because uh, they decided to do the exhibition like that start with the golden age and move on to the black swordsman era and everything after that so they just follow the same uh, layout in the book yeah so like i said earlier that book will eventually be made uh, available to non-exhibition attendees that's fantastic news 
It's what I had hoped for. At the same time, it's not available yet. And so I, uh, you know, I still really, really want it and still feeling a little anxious about it. Azil, I think you already are getting one. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I um, through a friend, uh, I, I managed to to get some of the stuff from the exhibition. Nice. Um, but uh, yeah, it will be available online. I think the real question is how difficult will it be to buy for people who are not based in Japan? Uh, can you use? I mean, I really don't expect them to ship internationally or to accept foreign credit cards because typically they just ship to Japan and only accept Japanese credit cards. But even if that's the case, with a third-party broker, people should be able to, to get these at a decent price. Because buying from resellers right now, you're going to pay uh, 80, 90 bucks uh, without shipping. So it, it ends up being a bit pricey in the end. Yeah, that is that is expensive. Yeah, I think for a while those books were floating around one fifty to one twenty five or so, and I saw them over the weekend at ninety, uh, and that's still three hundred percent markup because the original cost I think is thirty five dollars yeah. U.S. Mm-hmm. equivalent. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, uh, if that's it, I guess we'll turn to the reread. So we only have three episodes left in volume twenty six, but it's all about the armor. It's acquiring the armor, using the armor, everything about it, which is great. Uh, so I'm going to have Azil start us out with the first entry into that. All right. So uh, it's going up in flames to uh, Dark Horse chose to translate that as the blaze, but it really refers to something burning up, uh, like a building being destroyed by fire. So going up in flames is what I chose to translate it as. Um, as Flora reiterates to Shiruke that she must get the Berserk's armor to Guts, the girl is heartbroken at the perspective of losing her master, especially in these conditions. Meanwhile, Gus is facing an apostle quite unlike any he's battled before. In his weakened state, Granbell sends him flying off and mocks his performance in battle. His astral wounds also reopen, which does not help the matter. Meanwhile, Zod faces off against the Skull Knight, not for the thrill of battle this time, but because he's the only one who can hold him back. Inside the mansion, Serpico, Isidro, Shiruke, and the elves are confronted with a marauding apostle looking for Flora. Shiruke tries blowing her hair, but an apostle isn't a troll, and it does little more than pissing off. Ever the tactician, Serpico strikes at his eyes, and they run away while he struggles to follow, impeded by its size. With renewed resolve to fulfill her duty as Flora's pupil, Shiruke leads them to the treasure chamber, where the Berserk's armor sinisterly awaits. All right, so that's it for the summary. Um, what would I say about this episode? First off, that low angle shot of Grumbelt when he strikes at Guts is just stunning. Just amazing, sends him flying off, doing all these weird wins. Uh, just great. Uh, I also like that Grumbelt praises the Dragon Slayer as a hell of a sword, even while he's mocking Guts uh, for not being a great fighter. Um, it's interesting that Flora tells Shirokate's sinful to overextend one's life, and that's something she should know as a magic user. But she also seems utterly at peace, completely unperturbed by the prospect of death, which I also find it interesting considering her situation. And it's an interesting way, it reflects on her character as a, someone very wise and just appropriate for who she is. Uh, I also like that Zold has no qualms uh, killing an apostle just for disobeying. 
Uh, I think it's uh, pretty cool. It underlines his character as one who only respects strength, even though in this case he's become kind of a lackey for Griffiths. Still with Zod, he and the Skull Knights talk is a commentary on their usual agendas. SK only caring for ways to destroy the God Hand or disrupt their plans, while Zod only cares to battle strong opponents. But here they each have another objective. The Skull Knight wants to spare Flora the indignity of being beheaded by apostles, and Zod is leading the hit squad on others from his new master. So it's also an interesting way to show that Zod, well, now he's really become, like, he's in the ranks, right? He's not just a free-willing apostle anymore. Uh, a little note about the boar apostle that gets his head crushed. He was featured on Mura's New Year card of uh, 2007, which is a year of the pig. So hmm. just a nice little cameo for him, even though That's awesome. he had a, not a great showing in the actual story. <laughs> <laughs> A few last things. Uh, Serpico, I find it interesting that he advocates for immediate escape and to leave Flora behind uh, while they're fleeing from the Apostle. He's very, I mean, that's pretty cold of him, right? But it also fits his character. He's like, well, we, we're not going to be able to do it, so we should just bail right away. But of very course... Very pragmatic. Exactly. And then Shuke said, no, no, we, we're going to the uh, treasure room, right? And... Um, there's also one of my favorite lines from the Skull Knight in this episode, so I, I got to mention it. Uh, when the Apostle says they should get the witch's head, uh, he replies, So ikanu, uh, which means I won't allow it. Uh, and he just, you know, slashes the head of the frog one. So it's, it's pretty cool. Just, uh, just really love that line and just embodies the Skull Knight's cold, badass ways. It's a cool shot, too. Yeah. I mean, in addition to the line, I just like how he looks. And, of course, we say this all the time. He's not emoting, but the art makes it look like he's emoting, you know? Yeah. And uh, I guess final thing is that this is the first episode where we get a good look at the skull helmet. We see glimpses of it before, but in this one, we really get, like, we see it's a skull helmet. And it sparked uh, discussions back then about yep, uh, what that would sure. mean. So, interesting thing to note. Well, that's that's all for me. What do you guys think? One of my yeah, favorite um, things about this fight is whenever Grunbeld's hammer slams into Gus's sword, and I don't know. I, I always felt like this fight is extra. Like you really feel the weight of that thing, yeah, slamming against mm -hmm. Guts, and he's just getting punished. You know, yeah, yeah. And the, well, it's also. It's very unlike Guts to face an apostle and just get fucking creamed and thrown around the battlefield like this. It's very disorienting. Right, right. Especially after the episodes that we just read where he goes up against Slan and it's just like crazy. But somehow Mira managed to make the stakes feel even higher, even mm -hmm. after facing such a powerful being. Yeah. I think it's also a way to show that these... Uh, new Apostle Lieutenants of Griffiths are no, not kidding around, right? Uh, this right. guy, I mean, Zod, still, he's still Zod, right? He's still the ultimate Apostle. But this guy, he's a fucking giant. And so Guts is like a f fly to him, you know? He just, you know, sends him flying like, like it's nothing. So, yeah, I agree. It's, it's very, very imposing. And like I said, that long shot at the beginning where he really looks huge compared to Guts... Uh, just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 
there's a couple things I wanted to say. First is the way this episode starts uh, with this conversation between Flora and Shirke. Uh, Shirke is communicating with her through thought transference, obviously. Uh, but we see Flora wreathed in flames. And it's it kind of throws you off it's, if, for a second. Like, what is it that we're seeing? This uh, flame image and... I think you're just seeing the silhouette of Flora and through the flames. The flames themselves are between Shirke and Flora, so that's why they're represented like that. It doesn't mean that she's on fire. And in fact, when they're having this conversation and Shirke is, you know, freaking out that the place is going to burn down, there's this tiny little vertical panel of Flora, you know, sh- showing that she's basically just fine in her in her home. She says Shirke. You just see the lower part of her face. Mm. So yeah, it's just a visual representation of the flames that are around them. Uh, but it, it's, it's a, a surprising little cut for a moment uh, when you're not exactly sure what it is you're seeing. Then you see that and you kind of get reoriented. Yeah, it, it's one of those things that I didn't really uh, notice in all my years of rereading the series. And I feel like it kind of rewards you for paying extra close attention to that detail. Uh one thing I want to also say is about Grinbeld. You know, we've seen him before. He made his debut in volume 22, uh, but he's silent then. In volume 23, he has a little almost comical interlude with Mule in the Forest mm-hmm. uh, and Sonia, of course. But this is his first real time taking center stage. You know, we hear a lot from him in this episode. And you get a real sense that he's just kind of a big dick. Uh, he's, he shrouds himself in honor like he's a true warrior, a true knight, but... Clearly, that's not the case if he's an apostle. So it's just a really frustrating fight to watch for a number of reasons. First of all, he's beating up on an injured and unarmored guts, and he's mocking him for his inability to fight. Also, he's playing like he's a knight. And yeah, he was a knight when he was a human, but now he's lost his honor in becoming an apostle. And yet he still maintains that same, you know, honorly aura about him. So. It's just kind of a, a painful fight to see this happen yeah. to, to Guts, particularly from this guy. Um, but annoying for readers and annoying for Guts as well, I'm sure. He feels like a big bully, basically. He's like uh, the mm-hmm. kid that's uh, four grades higher up, and he's like, well, let's just fight man, man versus man, you know, just... And it's, it's just bullshit because, uh, I mean, he's obviously... He's a giant. He's got monstrous strength. And of course, as we get to see later on, as soon as he's actually in difficulty, he'll transform into his apostle form because, uh, yeah, he's, he's actually got no honor at all. I also really like Zod crushing the apostle's head while transforming. That's just a good move. And then, you know, he doubles it up by throwing the corpse into Skull Knight's <laughs> way because it looks like Skull Knight was actually in the process of mowing down the other apostles and then Zod you know, stops him in his path and challenges. Basically, they start fighting immediately after that. So Zod's there to stop Skull Knight because Skull Knight was going to start just lopping off the heads of apostles to stop this whole mission from happening. But Zod prevents him from doing that. Mm. Um, middle, middle management Zod. Yeah, poor <laughs> yeah. Zod. Just following orders here. Uh, there's one subtle thing that happens here, and that is uh, even though Guts and Shirke and Serpigo have been with Guts for what well, feels like a long time, and they've been through a lot. They've never faced troll. Uh, uh, sorry, they've never faced apostles before. This is a totally new creature for at least for it is for Serpico and Isidro. I imagine it is for Shirke as well. But um, for Serpico and Isidro, they just think it's some kind of weird monster, uh, and mm-hmm. they don't really know how to treat it. And you know, Serpico does go for the eyes, and he's smart. He's smart enough to go for a, to disengage from the fight and to run away further into the mansion, knowing it's kind of an overpowering thing, but. 
it's just interesting that apostles and guts are so closely tied. It's so close. That's so part of his journey. But these companions are, this is a totally new side of his, you know, wealth of opponents that they don't know anything about. So it's interesting to see their first encounter with them. Yeah, it's um, it's funny because it's kind of the first occurrence of them after Gus decides to not pursue revenge anymore for the sake of Casca. It's the first time he and his companions are basically forced back into that thing where they're facing with uh, apostles. And then we get some more of that later on in, in Britannis. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing that Mira chose to do it like that. And of course, as often, instead of just telling them about it, they get to experience it firsthand. Yeah, and and in fact, on the page, it's a, it's a little tiny panel. But when Shirke tries to um, defenders defend the area with, uh, she blows hair like she did to the trolls once, and it starts to burn the apostle. And then he starts to transform, you know, which surprises Shirke. So I, I guess she wasn't counting on that happening. She probably, I don't know how much she knows about apostles. I think we're kind of seeing that learning part happen, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I don't she looks surprised by the transformation in any case. Yeah, I don't think she's uh, she's familiar with them. I'm, I I mean, same with the Beret or stuff like that. Uh, I don't feel like that's uh, something Flora necessarily told her much about, which is interesting in its own way, right? Because it is. Right. It's, it's a strange omission because she knew about at least the outskirts of what the God Hand were. She knew that they were, you know, powerful beings from the astral world. She recognized that just in conversation with Flora, mm. but the apostles would be omitted from that for some reason. And to your point, you would think it's it's weird. It's as we as an audience, we take for granted that apostles might be a relatively rare thing in in the world of Berserk. We see it so often, <laughs> and right. Gut sees it so often. It might not be. Uh, it's hard to gauge exactly, you know, how many of them are are there, and and historically, are they something that you know witches need to worry about? Yeah, I think it's a. Uh it reflects on the fact they are kind of an artificial thing, right? Mm-hmm. right. Uh, they are not part of the natural, you know, magical world as it used to be. And the God Hand, they are one thing because they are very powerful astral entities. And then the, the apostles are created by them to do their bidding. And it's again something we touched upon it in previous rereads. Guts is a very unique is in a very unique position in that world because he's not he's not familiar with magic, but he's familiar with these specific kinds of evil beings. And in the same way that much later on Skellig, they ask him directly about Griffiths because he's the one who knows best. And here in this case, even these you know experts and so on and so on, he's the one who actually has got first-hand knowledge and very valuable knowledge to the point where Puck himself also knows a lot more than them uh, just because he's been with Guts uh, during the Black Swordsman era. So, yeah, I think it's also a way for to show that Shiroke might be a witch. She might have tons of knowledge about tons of things. She's not used to these specific monsters, Guts is. And that experience, that knowledge he learned and he got the hard way during his Black Swordsman years, uh, they're not just invalidated by these new characters. They're still very valuable, and uh, and it's even a way to contrast it. Yeah, what's been in my head ever since you raised it, Aziel, was that uh, the, uh, the apostle, as you said, is an artificial creature, not of the natural world, that was created. You know, basically over time, they developed this you know 
a different race, basically, a human uh, hybrid with this monster thing. It wouldn't be in a book. It wouldn't be in an ancient tome that Shirke has had, because as you said, that that book reflects the natural order of things, astral creatures, cataloging astral creatures. Uh, but because this kind of happens in the shadows and it is not related to the natural world, it makes sense that it wouldn't be in the book, which is where Shirke draws most of her knowledge from, if not all of her knowledge, is book learning. So, yeah, that is really interesting. I never really thought about it before. Now she's getting field experience. That's right. It's how it goes. You learn while doing. Street smarts. <laughs> uh, I do think it's nice to have another Skull Knight Zod moment. We'll get more of them as the episodes go on. They do they do have some some standout uh, encounters or lines between each other here. I, I like to see them. Any any episode where they're on screen or on page at the same time is a, is a highlight. Uh, it's nice to have them here again. Doesn't happen that often in the series. Not really. Mm. Yep. Uh, next is Armor of the Berserk, is Dark Horse's title, I believe. Uh, Azil, I wanted to see if you could explain why it's called uh, the Berserk Armor and not the Berserker Armor. Sure. So, uh, Dark Horse, I think they actually call it uh, Berserker Armor, which is uh, yeah, a simple way to say. The reason we specifically call it Berserk Armor instead is because in Volume 1, uh, Puck says that word in Japanese, Kyosenshi, and we get the Beruzeruku uh, Adidas Furigana to indicate that's how it should be pronounced. And of course, Beruzeruku is the title of the series. And what's important here is that it isn't an adjective, it's a noun. So in English, and of course this, call comes, this word comes from the Old Norse language, but in English you can use, uh, as a noun, you can use Berserk and Berserker. Obviously, nowadays... Berserk is much less common, but it's still proper. And yeah, my point is, Mira intended for Kyosenshi, which means Berserk, to be Berserk and not Berserker. So that's why it's a proper translation for, for that line. Honestly, that's more of a technicality. That's what we do because we're like hardcore fans. But given that it's the actual title of the series, to me, it would, be, it would feel weird to not reflect that, right? Because, for example, in modern RPGs or stuff like that, when people want to call a, a wire class a berserker, they will spell it in katakana, bazaka, uh, with long, long vowels. Uh, but here we specifically have beruzeruku coming from the Old Norse, uh, and it's equated to Kyosenshi, and it's the title of the series. For all those reasons, uh, we feel it's more proper to call it the Berserk's Armor. It's true, it's a less common usage in English. People might not be used to it. But the same goes for a lot of things. Uh, you take elves, people might say, well, uh, you'll say it's fairy. Puck is like a small little fairy, and I'm used to elves from uh, Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, but Mura decided to use elf in the old Norse mythology way, which is for these beings, and he calls them elves, and so we call them elves as well. Well, also, the katakana furigana is, is erufu, yeah. and they even call it elf helm. So it's not, it's not fairy helm. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean when I say that's what he calls them. The author chose to use that word, right. so we use that word, no problem. And it's actually uh, more correct, right? Because the Tolkien elves are more of a departure from the mythological ones than uh, what Mira's doing with, with Puck. Mm -hmm. So all of this to say uh, that it's more accurate, it follows the author's intent, and that's why we use that ourselves. 
Um, but uh, like I say, it's not it's not a huge deal. Yep, yep. May as well use the real name, although the meaning is not different at all. So a summary: uh, Guts battle with Grunbeld becomes even more dire because his injuries have reopened and he has no armor. There's no hope of surviving this fight. A golem intervenes and takes on Grunbeld while Guts seeks out the armor in the roots of the mansion below. Shirke acknowledges the danger of Guts wearing the armor in his current state, but there is no choice. So when an apostle comes knocking on the door, Shirke was actually willing to try magic, not wanting to put Guts' life in further risk. But Guts gives Shirke a confident smile, and they start assembling the armor onto him. The scene cuts to Grunbeld, who sees the apostle running from the mansion. Guts' foot is protruding from its mouth, so you think it's over for Guts for a moment, but it is sliced into chunks a moment later as Guts emerges from the body, and we get our first solid look at Guts in the armor. It's a moment so cool, even SK and Zod pause to watch, pause their fight to watch the spectacle. I think it's notable that this fight sort of parallels the moment when Guts got the Dragon Slayer. The, mm. There's a big difference, of course, because the stakes that are involved with the armor are much more dire than when Guts got the Dragon Slayer, which was more of a romp. It's more of a pure upgrade. Uh, the use of the armor comes at the cost, of course, but that's for the next episode. What I mean is that the odds were stacked against Guts both times, but he got an equipment upgrade and suddenly the tables are turned in his favor. So that's both pieces of equipment that are symbolic of Guts, the Dragon Slayer and the armor, they've had a similar debut uh, in a way which I think is neat. Yeah, that is a cool parallel. Yeah, and this episode, you know, starts with Guts on his back. Uh, He even nearly dies. That shot uh, that Grunbeld does when he does the cannon, Guts had nowhere to go, nowhere to dodge, nothing to deflect it. Maybe he could have lifted the Dragon Slayer, you know, but he doesn't. The Golem intervenes. Mm. Uh, But within, you know, 19, 20 pages, you know, he's back in new armor and he's stronger than ever before. So it's a nice flip from uh, where we've been the past few episodes. Very satisfying. Yeah, and his face... Go ahead, Azil. I was going to say, his face, when he sees... Uh, you know, we get a small panel of his eye when the, mm-hmm. we, he sees a cannonball coming at him. You can tell he's, uh, he's in real trouble. It's not, yeah. Yeah. it's not something you can easily get out of. Because even if he were to parry it with a dragon slayer, like the explosion itself might just uh, yeah, kill him on the spot. Yeah, you're right. The mechanism of, of Grunbeld's cannon, we see it a couple of different ways. Uh, I, I like how he has to use his hammer to strike it, to, to ignite the, the, the firing of it. And then later when he's fighting the golem, we see him loading it from uh, his pouch. You know, there's these details here uh, with how this stuff works that Miura, you know, wanted to share with readers, but not necessary. But I love that he thought it through about how this thing works and what's inside it and how does he load it. You know, those small little details. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. We see even the like the, the ball itself. Then he's got this little capsule with a powder in it. Very nice. And like you say, any other author wouldn't have cared. Mm-hmm. They're just like, yeah, just he's reloading. It's cool. He's got a cannon in his shield. Yeah, oh, shit. You wouldn't even <laughs> see the reloading. But not only does it take time to it, you can tell he's thought about where this stuff would go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the inclusion of that tool in general kind of further draws Guts and Grunbeld together in comparison, I feel like. Because you read it and you feel like, whoa, this is really weird. Like, Grunbeld... And Guts are, are similar in a lot of ways, and it makes you wonder, like, if Guts had ever become an apostle, what would he look like? I, th- I feel like Grunbeld is an example. <laughs> yeah. Grunbeld's like a tank, though, and Guts is much more like, you know, yeah. oh, jumping around true. all the time. <laughs> yeah. 
the canon thing is just funny. Yeah, yeah. The, the canon itself is pretty cool. And uh, you can tell that Gut is surprised that the shield holds a cannon, which is interesting because it's reversed later on when uh, Gut himself fires his own cannon from his arm and Grunbell is su- surprised by it. So yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. And beyond that, I mean, just the design of the shield, the Gamera-inspired design. Gamera is a Japanese kaiju, if you don't know. Uh, and the fact he's also got blades. When he's fighting the golem, he pulls out the blades from the front to slash it down. So it's a, it's just a great weapon. I mean, honestly, it's just awesome. Yeah, we see the blades protrude, uh, I think it's for the first time when he's fighting the big golem. Yeah, it's 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 a cool little moment uh, to showcase. He uses them uh, in Shet as well. Oh, does he? Mm. Everything got shown in Shet. Yeah. <laughs> I really like uh, this shot of SK and Zod, yet another glorious shot of them fighting, reminiscent of Volume 12 um, when they're going at it. Uh, it looks beautiful and Poor Grunbeld looks at them very somberly. You know, he's 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 jealous that you know <laughs> Zod was able to find this amazing warrior on the battlefield, and he's left with the scraps. This black swordsman loser with you know his reputation is bigger than the reality as far <laughs> as he's concerned. But Guts has this retort that you know monsters shouldn't be pretending to be warriors. I, I love this <laughs> Guts reaction to apostles. I love the idea here that he himself is a warrior and he is uh, he, he recognizes, you know, valor and honor and things like that on the battlefield for what they are. And here's someone on the opposite side of him who's just dressing up in it, you know, in addition to that, he's an apostle. And so Gut's response is basically that Grunbeld has no right to be acting like he's an honorable warrior when mm. he's a cl- clearly an apostle. So Guts strikes to the heart of it and, Grunbeld's response is to kick him across the field, basically. I think he really struck a nerve with Grunbeld in in these because you don't see his eyes when he, you know, kicks mm-hmm. guts and does all this stuff. You don't really see his eyes until a few pages later when the golems show up, which to me indicates that, you know, if you were gonna look at his face, he'd be he'd be uh a bit pissed. Yeah. And he just a fact he tells him he's not worthy to be killed by his hammer. Uh, yeah, you can tell he's, he's annoyed. So it has to have struck a nerve because I'm I'm sure even in somewhere in his heart, Grunbeld is is aware of the dissonance between what he did and who he is. You know, like there there has to be some part of him that struggles with that. Of course, yeah. And it, it's interesting because the word uh, Gats uses to say warrior, uh, Bujin, uh, basically means uh, a soldier. Also, you know, mm. a man in the military. So it's an interesting way. It's not just be, being a warrior, but pretending to be part of a, like a, the band of the Falcon, to, to be a soldier, you know, fighting battles instead of what he is, which is just a monster preying on humans and, and on the weak and defenseless. So right. interesting, right. got a lot of depth to it. Towards the end of this episode, there's uh, actually two pages that were added to the volume. It's right after Guts grabs Shirke's hand. Uh, when the we show shows the Apostle coming into the room a little further, and they start to assemble the armor on Guts, that's a new page, as is the immediately following page, which is the full-page shot of Guts in front of the Apostle with its mouth open. Mm. Its vagina mouth, I should say. Big old mouth. Yeah. So those are added for the volume. They weren't there before. Uh, they, they give you a little bit of information. I, I like that the apostle coming into the room like that, he starts to get numbed by the defenses on the door. I'm assuming, I'm assuming the tree roots are enchanted in some way that cause mm-hmm. its body to go numb as he's describing his numbness. And uh, as soon as Guts gets the armor on, he smacks the Sidra away. But right before that, Puck is saying 
been nice knowing you. He's got a, his bag packed. He's ready to escape because, you know, the apostle's breaking into the room. Time to go. Uh, he's out. Nice knowing you guys. See ya. Like that little moment with Puck. Yeah, it's great. Okay. And he tells, mm-hmm. on the a few pages before, he tells Ivar, like, it's time to, to bail already. So <laughs> he's preparing. And then he's got a little backpack, like you say. That's yep. cute. When uh, we first see Skull Knight battle apostles, it's really like a mind-blowing moment. The the techniques he uses, you see something being carved up in lots of pieces. Uh, it basically, his, his sword is moving so fast, you only see the re- results of it, right? When Guts gets the armor, the first thing, the first attack we see him make, it's kind of similar. We see the apostle gets torn into like six pieces, uh, you know, like shish, shish kebab very easily. Uh, it makes you kind of see how the Skull Knight might have acquired some of his power over time. Yeah. Even its teeth are perfectly sliced apart. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's very surgically sliced teeth, uh, <laughs> particularly for the Dragon Slayer. This shot of the full page shot of Guts in the Armor is one of my favorite shots in the series. And it's probably many people's favorite shots. Uh, very heroic looking, although very kind of dark. It's just a cool juxtaposition of, you know, your expectations for what Guts is wearing. It's also just a, the debut of the armor, really. It's the first time we see it really in action is this one full-page shot with the Dragon Slayer there. It's, it's the new marriage between uh, weapon and armor for the series. I don't remember if you guys noticed, uh, uh, mentioned this before, but I thought this was an interesting detail as somebody who started reading the series episodically later on. But you guys mentioned how it was kind of unclear that it was a skull mm-hmm. uh, for the helm of the armor. Before. Until the last episode, the previous episode that uh, Azia yeah. was talking about. Yeah, because the bottom half of it was obscured for yeah. most of it. And so, yeah. yeah, some of us were kind of guessing, is it a skull or is it yeah. just like similar to how Guts has a helmet in the Golden Age that only covers the top half of his head, right? Right. Is right. it like that? Is it just a visor? And then it becomes more clear it's a skull. And then you go, oh, it's a skull. Oh, and Skull Knight had you know, expressed some trepidation about the armor. Suddenly right. things start clicking into place. This was probably one of his old armors. Right. Um, but I think at the time, that's all that really went to because we didn't know the supernatural part of the armor until you know, later on. Yeah, I think people who are just reading the volumes for the first time might get some more uh, value out of details like that to, to really appreciate how how much the episodic readers had to speculate back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun that way, though. You get to piece it together piece by page by page, piece by piece. Absolutely. It's different. Yeah. Painful, but different. Painful. Speaking of painful, I feel sorry for this apostle who, who gets uh, sliced and diced by Guts in the Berserk's armor because... It's it's kind of humor humorous but in a relatable way like when you eat some when you eat some bad <laughs> fish or something you're like it's supposed to be dead. Oh. <laughs> it's in my body so it's dead, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then it slices you up from the inside. Oh uh, yeah, I've had that feeling. <laughs> we get a good look at that apostle for the first time too. The one that he eventually carves himself out of uh he's saying it hurts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that what he's saying? Oh yeah, yeah, help me it hurts. That's what he's saying. I ate him, he should be dead. Yeah. And his uh, pronunciation is also distorted, uh, right. presumably because he's got the dragon slayer stuck in him already at this point. Well, I think it's because his body is the mouth, and that's how he's talking. So it's like he's trying to talk with something in his mouth. That's what it yeah. seems like. Indigestion. But yeah, his design is interesting. The little tentacle arms with mouths on the end of them. It kind of reminds me of like a Dreamcast game, uh, like the Nico fight kind of, a little bit. Oh, yeah. Mm. I don't know. Um, I think that's it. Uh, Azil, do you want to take it over for the next episode, the last one of the volume? Yeah, just one thing I wanted to say about this one is sure. that uh, I do love the giant golem. 
uh, that is so big it dwarfs even Grumbled. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's fucking great. So even though it gets demolished, and obviously that's that is a how to say it's a, you know nature and point and goal. Uh, I still I still love it very much. I liked seeing how methodical and quickly that Grunbeld dispatches it. I mean, it's obvious there was no question that the Golem was going to like defeat Grunbeld or anything, but. You know, the way he approaches it so methodically is, is cool. He slices it, goes for the cannon shot, loads it, shoots it. It's just all pretty cool one-page action yeah. sequence. He's not just a big monster. He he does have fighting skill, which is also why he's a formidable opponent. Mm-hmm. Moving on to Berserk's Armor Part 2. This scene opens with everyone amazed and puzzled that Guts' uh, sudden prowess as Apostle Shredded Meat lies at his feet. Zod recognizes the armor and asks the Skull Knight if he intends for Gus to end up like him. Inside the armor, Gus reflects on the fact he doesn't feel pain anymore, but he feels something gushing forth from inside of him. We see the wound on his chest twist, taking the shape of the Beast of Darkness' eye, as it tells him to yield everything to it. Outside, the armor's shape changes, with the helmet taking on the shape of the Beast. Guts immediately bursts forward towards Grumbled, who's still confident at this point, but that quickly changes as Guts unleashes attacks relentlessly using a novel and very acrobatic fighting style. He throws himself at him, he uses his sword as a pole, he jumps from him to use a tree branch as a support to do a downward jumping attack. It's beyond what a human being can do. And it's also a really cool fight that culminates uh, in this episode with him blowing up Grumble's shield using his own cannon arm, what I was talking about before. However, Shiriki explains that the Berserk's armor is also very dangerous. It's a magical item that was made by dwarves, or perhaps a dwarf. (laughs) Uh, And the way it works is that its odd is like a great fire that fans violent emotions within the wearer. So much so that they forget about things like pain and fear. This allows them to go beyond the limits of their body to fight using so much strength that they actually hurt themselves in the process. And they also ignore their existing wounds, no matter how severe they are. The episode ends with a shot of Guts' blood seeping all over from the armor into the grass. Um, yeah, very, very dense episode. Lots of things happens. Uh, very cool to see the reversal of uh, Guts versus Grumble, as we said. Very important sentences in, in this, uh, this one is what the beast tells Guts, or I guess, you know, Guts tells himself, depending on how you want to take it. Uh, Subete o yudanero, uh, which basically means leave everything to me and trust everything to me, yield everything to me. Very important line. I mean, iconic at least uh, of that part of the series. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that Zod recognizes the armor and asks the Skull Knight about it. Uh, he uses the same word Flora does earlier on, nostalgic. Mm. Uh, this has been the cause of much speculation about Zod's past and his exact age, with people guessing that he must have known the Skull Knight when he was still human. However, we also repeatedly told that Zod has been out there fighting for 300 years, whereas Gazarik's fall was a thousand years ago. There's a bunch of ways to reconcile that discrepancy. Like saying Zod has been around for a long time, but embark on the life of Carnage only recently, you know, doing air quotes here with recently because 300 years is nothing to sneeze at. Anyway, that being said, I personally don't think that's what Mira intended. I don't think Zod has been around for a thousand years. 
Uh, it would feel messy uh, to me to have that mixed up with Geyseric and Void all those years back. So in any case, his past remains one of the biggest mysteries in the series at this point. And that line is very important within that uh, context. Um, another thing is that when Zod addresses the Skull Knight, he uses a, a kanji that says Sworn Enemy, or Nemesis, if you want. Uh, but with three ganas, that indicates uh, the sound is Tomo, which means friend in Japanese. So this conveys a, a, a nuanced relationship, uh, and it's also a little glimpse into what went out between them over the years uh, that we didn't get before. So I uh, thought so it was important to point out. To be clear, Dark Horse translates that as rival, which is probably to the letter, like a fine way of translating it, but I feel like something's lost. It's just dear old rival. Uh, I get more meaning out of what Azil just said, that it is nemesis, but also he regards him as friend. It's, it's fine. I mean, you can't. It's a problem with translating. There's always something lost, right? So, yep. Yeah. Another thing, I do find Shuke's face pretty funny when uh, Isidro slaps her on the back because he's happy uh, with God's performance. I think it's pretty priceless. Like she, You can clearly tell she's not used to this level of uh, camaraderie. <laughs> we, we <should> say. <laughs> and I also do love the Sanseya joke from Puck uh, about God's getting a, a close, which is uh, the <laughs> term they use in Sanseya for armor. Uh, that, that feels very appropriate given the context. But yeah, I thought it was cute. Anyway, yeah. what do you guys uh, think about this? Well, as to, to reference what you were just saying, I love how even in the midst of a great crazy action scene or like a really dramatic moment, there's still like a comedy inserts like that, which I think is great. I really love the idea of the Berserk Armor and its power and that it comes with a price. Uh, this feels like a very Berserk thing, a very Miura thing, that you know, even an apostle, pays a price to, to get their power. And when, when Shirke casts a big spell or reaches out for um, a big summon, if you will, you know, she's, she's incapacitated in the process of that. And she has to really struggle to look in the environment and find the right entity for this to pair for this need that they have on the battlefield. And so there's, there's a struggle. There's a, there's a price you pay for that power. And, and here it's, it's likewise the berserk armor, it doesn't transform the wearer into a, a demon or a monster, right? But it draws out the power, the innate power that's in the person's body. And in doing so, damages them. So it's still human power. It's just pushed to the limits that the human body can take beyond the limitations of humanity. So I absolutely love this concept. And I love how the armor itself, the, the big reveal, right? They've been teasing for three episodes now. Uh, we finally see Guts in this skull armor. And you think that's it. This is his new armor. Now he has a skull helmet, right? <laughs> but then it gets a little darker and he gets he yields to the armor and suddenly it's fully transformed. The helmet transforms into this totally new icon for the series, this Berserk helmet. So this is its real debut. The Beast has been teased and hinted at you know, since volume 16. Uh, but this is the first time we see it on the stage. Uh, particularly... The first time his um, his companions see it, they had no idea that this thing was, you know, a, an aspect of guts or lurking in him in a way. So they didn't know about guts's personal brand. Yeah, really. <laughs> so yeah, his logo. All these things are spinning in this episode. And Azil, you pointed out that Asidro slaps Jerke on the back because he's, you know, he's basically he's excited over this new development that guts is now back in action and super powerful. 
But just a few pages later, after he transforms, the look on Isidro's face is <laughs> uh, shocked uh, at what his you know, hero has become, basically. Yeah. There's also a small little line on that page where Shirke, or Isidro's shocked face, and he says, so that's a hand, that hand's a cannon. So like all along, <laughs> Gus has been hiding that his false arm is a, is a cannon as well, which is yeah. pretty funny. But they didn't know that either. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things, again, where... People just don't talk in Berserk. Either you see something happen or you're never going to know, basically. Yeah. Wow. Just to, to uh, bounce off of what you said. Yeah. Sure. It's interesting that you see even his nervous system is displayed uh, uh, on, on a page to show that the damage the armor does on the body is not just superficial. It's profound. Uh, and it damages in ways that we... Only later on, uh, get more details about, uh, damaging senses and so on. And just to go back on the relationship between the armor and the beast of darkness, uh, it's interesting because the armor, like, like we mentioned, uh, just fuels, it's like a never ending flame that fuels the negative emotions of the world, his violence and so on to spur them on to fight. Hence its name, Brother's Armor. Uh, and in God's case, of course, that's represented by the Beast of Darkness, uh, which is his uh, uh, psychological representation of his dark side uh, put on the page. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's an, interesting, uh, an interesting combination to put that concept that was born in uh, Volume 16 uh, directly uh, at the forefront on the page in action and uh, almost as a more overt part of Gut's character uh, as opposed to something that's eating at the back of his brain uh, or when he's possessed by specters. So a uh, very interesting choice and just genius move from Mura to introduce it at that point. Right. I do think that because it is so physically different than Guts, I do think readers often get tripped up in thinking that the beast is some kind of entity that is possessing Guts. Uh, but... I think it's actually more clear to Japanese readers because of the way it, it, it speaks. It speaks in a way that implies that it's Guts talking to himself. Is that correct, Azil? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, there's a limit to how much you can you can go with that. But Mura does tend to have the beast speak as if it's Guts speaking to, to himself. And uh, I mean, you can again tell uh, in later volumes uh, when he's, got, he's on the, the ship and he's got the little tête à tête with the, the beast, right? But um, mm. yeah, I mean, generally, an easy way to to see it is that it's a manifestation of his trauma from the eclipse. Casca uh, went insane because of what she endured. Guts did not go overtly insane, but he went down a very dark path. And those years of violence and of going down that dark path resulted in that. Uh, dark part of him uh, taking on that shape. And also, more pra- practically, it's a cool way for Mura to represent the darkness inside him. Instead of just being, I don't know, him suddenly being a dick or you see his eyes blur, mm-hmm. well, you've got that uh, visual representation of his uh, negative emotions in the form of the beast. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's guts. It's not some outside entity. Right. I often like to think of it as, you know, the beast is what de- is basically like a powerful engine that he developed in himself, but he can't stop that engine from spinning anymore. It's still spinning inside of him. He needed it at the time as a black swordsman, but now it's still spinning inside of him and he can't control it anymore. He often refers to it as a black flame. 
And in volume 17 specifically, he sinks back to the fact the only reason the black flame did not engulf him is because he had that small flame left, which is, of course, Casca. Uh, and mm. that small flame allowed him to remain human, to remain himself. Of course, with Puck's help, as we, we see a record comment at the time. But yeah, he often refers to it as that, a black flame. And if you think back to how... Uh, marketing and communication was done for Berserk back in the day. They often went about how he was scorched by hatred, scorched by the right. need for revenge. They used to have a, a, a bit of an awkward phrase, which is, uh, why has he got burnt with revengeful thought? That's how they put it uh, during the Golden Age arc uh, to explain why did Gus become the Black Swordsman? Why did he become, uh, like I said, scorched by that black flame? That's because of the eclipse and what went on. And so that, that black flame took on the shape, the form of the Beast of Darkness. Wow, I didn't know that yeah. about the marketing. And it's something Froa also comments on about uh, karmic fire. Yep, mm-hmm. took the words from my mouth. So yeah, they have conceptualized it you know, into an actual phrasing. Um, the way the beast fights, it's a little different than Guts. It's more wild... It always looked to me like he used the momentum of the sword a little bit more and the way he's wildly, you know, throws his sword out like that. The, the way the body moves, it's almost like irrelevant as long as the sword strike itself lands. Like this is a shot mm-hmm. with um, with Guts after he does this like, I don't know what to call the what he's doing, but this two page spread where it's horizontal arrangement where he lands on Grimbelt's shield with his feet and the sword, you know? Yeah, it's like he launched himself at him. Yeah. The next page is this bizarre thing where the Dragon Slayer finally lands, and it's just like the body, just how it falls is kind of irrelevant. I think it conveys the fact he's also moving in ways that are unnatural for a human. Uh, mm. and it's also something that's uh, born from the armor, uh, that he will do whatever it takes, and, and it's not just his muscles that are working over time, but his tendons, his bones, everything is just being pushed to the limit and beyond the limit, uh, because, yeah, all he wants is a sword connects. He doesn't care about mm-hmm. what happens to himself. Uh, we talked about it before, but I think, I wonder if it happens in this. Yeah, it is. Uh, he can articulate the hand uh, well, he couldn't before because of the armor. Whenever he uses the cannon... He, you know, normally Guts has two ways of pulling the cannon. He can pull a string or he can uh, use it with his hand as well. Uh, and in here, he does independent. His arm is holding the sword. He's looking away. His hand lifts up and the cannon arm is exposed. So the implication is that the armor magically, you know, uh, allows it to him to manipulate the hand in a way. Yeah. And it's even better than that because he actually can use his fingers. Right. From, from that arm, oh, you, we see that he actually grabs uh, the shield with the hand from the armor, uh, the gauntlet, then it opens up to reveal the cannon and shoots into it. So it's also a way to show, yeah, it's a magical armor that can do things. Like, normally he can't move, actually, his hand because it's uh, it's artificial, but now he using the armor, he can actually do that. It's also just a great moment that Grunbeld has a nice little cannon and Guts says, I'm going to blow up your cannon with my cannon. He puts his cannon <laughs> in his cannon and pulls... Man, Exhibit would have a field day with this thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the episode. There's a lot more. This is the thing. Oftentimes, Berserk volumes end in a way that, boy, I wish you could have had at least just one more episode to, to, to even this out. Because this ends such mid-sequence that the very next episode continues so directly from this conversation they were having with Shirke. And, you know, we have to wait till the next volume. Uh, what a painful uh, bookend to this amazing volume, though. So much more to come. 
Yeah, well, it's also a good cliffhanger for us for this podcast episode. Tune in for the next one, guys. <laughs> Don't miss the next episode. But yeah, that's it. Um, I guess I'll thank everyone for, first of all, for listening to the show. Uh, if you want to read more discussion about Berserk uh, from us and from many others, go to skullnight.net, where we have a massive community that's been around for more than 20 years. Uh, as always, we also have a Patreon. So I want to say thank you for those that have been supporting us over there. That's patreon.com slash sknet. So whether you're sending us just a few bucks a month uh, or all the way up to our gold tier, you were all awesome and we really appreciate that. You have probably already seen them, but if you haven't, please go check out all the posts Azeel's been making very regularly. Uh, those include translation bits, uh, news items, uh, pictures from the ex exhibition, pictures of his own personal collection of merchandise. There's a, there's a ton. Uh, in addition to that, Puella uh, has put up part two of a new interview that we've not seen yet. I think it's the, the Persona... Uh, developers with Miura. That's right, and uh, plus three is uh, coming later today. Awesome. So yeah, she's also doing work on uh, Skull Knight's. All of Skull Knight's scenes are being translated piece by piece. Little updates uh, every now and then, uh, so we get a little bit little blurbs from that. I think we're up to volume ten now. Pretty sure that's right. Uh, Fourteen, I think. Got it. So yeah, there's been a lot of activity on the Patreon. Please go check it out. Uh, I think most of those updates are available for 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 most of the tiers. Uh, but if you want everything, the gold tier is the way to go. And we also have been putting out many podcasts, one per month. The next one's coming pretty soon uh, with me and Azeel. Those are 30-minute to an hour-long conversations about pretty much anything, not just Berserk, but lots of stuff too. But I wanted to individually thank those that are gold subscribers, and those include Asmer. Spacey Louse, Dirtiest M, Jason D, M, Name, Thomas Lambert, Walter, Rombad, and Incantation. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, we will see you back here in a month. See ya. Thanks, everyone.